welcome to another episode of LambdaCast. I'm joined this week by my co-host, Logan Barnett. Hello. And Aaron Johnson. Hello, podcast land. As always, we love to hear from you. You can tell us what you think at contact at LambdaCast.com. You can leave a message on our episodes at LambdaCast.com. Or you can join us at one of the Slack communities that we're a part of, primarily the fpchat.com Slack community, which is a global uh, group of uh, f- functional programming enthusiasts that spans all sorts of different languages, and all three of us are on there. Those are the ways you can contact us. We do get mail every once in a while from people, um, sort of, you know, how's it going kind of email. Uh, if you have a specific question, something that you think we did well, we didn't do well, don't don't be afraid to write in and let us know, and we can address that on air. Uh, for Slack, are we anticipating being on a, a shared channel together? Uh, you mean like, do we have a LambdaCast channel kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, I hadn't created one. I hang out in quite a few different channels, and they can always direct message us. That's true. But if people want to create a LambdaCast channel, um, we could certainly hang out in something like that. Awesome. Think about that, actually. So this time, uh, I wanted to start to dip into some of the stuff that, I mean, we've been talking a lot about a lot of concepts that are, at least on the surface level, fairly simple. And I think people generally have a pretty good sense of how they might apply it to their programs. Immutability, you know, that sort of thing, pure functions. This time I want to get into a little bit of what, at least on the static side of functional programming, sometimes starts to scare people off a little bit. And this is a concept uh, that basically only really exists in static typed languages. Um, It's not just functional languages. This exists in all static, pretty much all static languages. Um, So uh, this is called polymorphism. And the idea here is that you have functions that want to be able to operate on more than a single concrete type. So if you look at C, if you're familiar with C at all, or I guess uh, Pascal, some, some of the languages from the eight, 70s and 80s, they're statically typed, but there's no way to say I want to have a generic-like list of something. They, they have sort of special handling for, for arrays of things, but arrays are really just special syntax for pointers, so that's kind of cheating. But they don't have like a user-defined data type that you can say it, it holds an arbitrary thing. And C++ solved this with their uh, their templates. Java solved Java and C Sharp called this generics, and uh, you know various languages have different names for this. Is everyone pretty familiar with the idea of generics? Yes. Yes, from the cast here, certainly. Yeah, I, and if you're coming from like a uh, I don't know, like a, a Ruby or a JavaScript or a Python world, you might kind of scratch your head and go, "Huh, that's kind of weird that I can't just put a thing." inside my my list or my array, whatever your sort of, uh, you know, container, basic container is. And in those languages, certainly you can just stuff any any kind of value in there and it works. But you can't ever, um, what you're giving up there, of course, is the ability to say only this kind of thing can go in here. And I know that everything I get out is of this type. And so uh, Java pre Java 5 had no generics. So they existed much like C did uh, prior. And what they had to do as a result was you had your uh, array list and your array list is sort of your generic uh, list kind of thing. 
and you could shove values in there, but every uh, value got upcasted to a object. So whatever you put in, it was now considered an object. And then when you got it out, you had to cast it to the type that you knew it was. So you kind of had to carry around this implicit knowledge of what kind of thing it was. And if you didn't cast it, you couldn't call any methods on it, and it was basically useless. So that was a gigantic pain. And it was hugely beneficial to be able to say, I have a list, or an array list in, in Java, of, let's say, I don't know, invoices. And now if you try to put not an invoice in there, anything else, the compiler will yell at you, and you'll get a compile time error instead of a runtime error. Is that still jiving with your understanding of how all this works? Yeah, I think yeah. you're you're summing it up fairly well. That's exactly right, and it's the same thing trying to get things out. You know, you're when, you, when you're getting from your list of invoices, for example, you know you're also getting an invoice without having to do any special stuff, and the compiler's going to enforce that. Yeah, and then we can extend this. So this is useful, sort of at a um, a data type level, saying I have a list of that's parameterized by by some type, and that list then holds things of that type. But we can also do it on our on our functions uh, in, in C Sharp or Java the methods, but it's the same idea. So you can have a function that takes some un, you know, some yet to be determined type in uh, C Sharp, they're often the word letter capital letter T is used to represent this. So you can have a function that takes a T, where T can be anything, and maybe returns a T or does something with it, or you know. It depends on what the function is doing, but you can take in a value of an unknown type. So the function doesn't know the type that it's going to be working with. And this doesn't come up a lot. I see um, this polymorphism concept applied mostly to data structures and not to functions. And this is a big departure between, uh, this is where functional programming will depart greatly from other statically type programming languages. Things like Haskell and Elm and PureScript and languages like that rely, and F-sharp as well, um, rely much more on functions that are polymorphic. And this is called uh, parametric polymorphism. So the idea is you have a parameter, instead of it being of a fixed type, it's polymorphic. So it's parametrically polymorphic. So if you hear that term thrown around, that's all we're talking about. Yeah, sounds complicated, but really just uh, just putting a word on something that's really pretty simple. It's fairly simple, yeah. If the whole concept of polymorphism uh, isn't too confusing. So so let's talk a little bit about this whole any type business. Let me jump in real quick and uh, say actually that I think it's worth mentioning because some people might be coming here from classes or um, still be in school even. And uh, what I remember from polymorphism in school was, was talking about you have a base object with maybe abstract virtual methods on the on the base, and then um, sub-objects, and then that sub-object, like you maybe have an animal type, and then there's cat and the dog, and so on and so forth. Isn't that also um, a kind of polymorph polymorphism, where you're talking about uh, the sub-objects call the base, the base class, and then you're still working with multiple different uh, types of objects um, on that method? Yeah, that poly polymorphism does get used for that term, the idea of you have a reference to a base class and you don't know if it's going to run the method of the base class or the method of one of the subclasses because the actual object that's at the other end of that reference could be any of the subclasses. Yeah, but really what, what, what you're doing there is is polymorphism in the sense that, well, maybe it's a cat, maybe it's a dog. When you're calling that method, it's still that same basic idea. That's just kind of a more specific implementation. Mm, this is actually going to be different. 
I get the impression that OO's take on polymorphism is much different than functionals. Yeah, that we're going to okay. use polymorphism in the sense of you know poly for many and morphism for you know kind of shape. Mm -hmm. So there are many. Uh, the idea there is you have a single base type with a method, and then there can be many sort of implementations of that method um, based on the specific subclass that is actually at the other end of the reference. This is flipping it around. There's one implementation that can handle many types. Yeah. It's kind of funny because there isn't different shapes in OO's polymorphism, right? Uh, that's it's like true. You all have to implement this interface or whatever. I, I guess it would be more accurately said to be be that there's many implementations. Yeah. Many different behaviors. Okay. That would well, be a more I'm, accurate way. I'm still glad we went over and uh, kind of cleared up that that differentiation because some people might be thinking polymorphism in that academic sense, and we're talking about specifically what you have explained here earlier, which is functions that may take multiple types or even a generic type. In right. So that type of polymorphism, sort of polymorphism by inheritance, is not parametric polymorphism. So if you hear someone using parametric polymorphism, they're talking about this sort of uh, more FP-oriented concept. Perfect. So the idea being, um, when we talk about the thing that is polymorphic, meaning many shapes, right, or many behaviors, I guess, would be polymorphic. Um, the The idea is you you are going to write a function or create a data structure that works with a type that you don't know what it is, which sounds crazy when you say it out loud that way. You're gonna you're gonna take in a parameter and have no idea what it's gonna be, and you're supposed to do something useful with that. Can we clarify real quick? Can, does it, do you have to accept any type, or can you accept a small subset of types? So yeah, so this depends on the language. Mm -hmm. In its raw form, you accept any type. Depending on the language, you can begin to uh, constrain it in some way. Uh, one example of that would be in C sharp. Are you familiar with that? With constraining the types that you can accept? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, no? The where clause that you can put on your generics. You basically can say it needs to implement this interface. Hmm, OK. Yeah, so you can have a, um, a function uh, foo uh, parameterized by type t. Mm -hmm. And it takes in a t and returns a t, for example. Now, when you do that, you get certain capabilities out of it. Now you can make assumptions about what t is. And you know some, some of its interface. And you can call things on it or treat it certain ways. Right, because it it's no longer just that... a generic object. This is the subset of objects that, that you know it falls into. Yeah, you right. know it implements this interface. So yeah, so you would say you know, it's, it's foo, it takes a t, returns a t, and t is constrained to be an i whatever. So T, basically, it's it's kind of like as if you would put I whatever in the generic, in, as the parameter type. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like that. Now, why wouldn't you just use I whatever? It's a good question, and I've forgotten the reason. It's OK. We're a little bit language specific here anyway. Yeah. Um, but the, the important part is that you there are languages that you can constrain the types that you're getting, right? Yes, and um, I think actually in C sharp it's because you can say an interface, but then you can also say um, things like it must have a constructor and things like that. Mm. You, you can kind of make differentiations between like structs and classes. Again, that's a little C sharp specific, but in general you can say a little bit about the constraint on the degree of polymorphism. Like it could be anything so long as this mm -hmm. thing as is sort of um, adhered to. And that is going to trade off. You can't. You now cannot take anything as a parameter, but you can do more with the things that you get. 
Yeah, as a simple example, if you know it's a number, then you know you can probably do basic arithmetic operations on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's actually a really good point and, and something I was very much intending to bring up is that what we have is we have a spectrum. So we have types for which we know everything, like a concrete type, and types for which we know nothing, like a fully polymorphic type. And then we have you know things in between, things that implement a certain interface. And at every step in there, we have, um, with every increase in knowledge about the type, we can do more things, but as a result, we can have less certainty about what the function can do. And I'll give you the canonical example for this. So we have a function. It doesn't matter the function's called foo. It takes, I'll use C-sharp uh, types. Um, in, in C-sharp, we call this T, the type that it's going to take in. If this was like uh, more of a Haskell, uh, F-sharp-E, ML kind of derived language, we would say A because they use lowercase letters for their uh, generic type type parameters. So this would be foo, which is of type A to A. So it takes in an A, returns an A. If we were over in those languages, if this is F-sharp, or if this is sorry, C-sharp or something, we'd say it's uh, foo, takes in a T, returns a T. So my question to you is, given the function foo, that takes in a T and returns a T, what do we know about what it does inside? Just seeing only its type signature. No, it's returning a T. We know it's returning T. That's true. Uh, so is this in context of a functional language only? That is an excellent question. Why does that matter? Uh, because OO languages can reach out of their functions and grab global state, static stuff, okay. anything they want. They can have side effects. Yeah, they can potentially mutate what's coming in even. Absolutely. So let's assume this is a pure functional language where values are immutable. Or, or we have we have um, are voluntarily taken on that constraint, even if it's not that kind of language. It's basically a no-op. In what sense? Uh, it it basically just returns whatever it is that you passed into it. You're certain. Yes. Why can't it make a new one and hand that back? Um, doesn't that become a constant at that point? Well, sure. So, so why can't our function? Uh, ignore the T that you passed in and just give you back a, a, its own T. Right, or like if it if it took in any numeric thing and then it just returns five or whatever. Okay, sure, but that's, so now we're talking about numerics. I'm talking about T. Yeah, well, I'm just using that as an example. Okay, but but it's, but there's a distinction yeah. that I'm making here. It's so I'm backing up. I'm going to say you, you really know very, very little. All you know is that you're getting back a T. I don't think there's anything else you can you can say besides the fact that, okay, Th there Something is more happens or doesn't happen. There's definitely more. And Logan is correct. I'm just want to, I'm being a little pedantic. So I want to get to the reason because it's subtle, but it, man, when I first understood this, I like walked around for five minutes going like, no, yes, no. Yeah. What? Yeah. I did that for like five minutes. So <laughs> Logan is correct. The only possible implementation implementation of this function is that the T that is passed in is returned. We know beyond any shadow of a doubt, that is the only possible thing that will compile. I do not need to look at the source code. I know for sure. I know why now. Why? Because you don't have the constructor. Yeah. You have no idea what T is. You can't construct a T for which you know nothing about it. What type is it? Ah. What if it's a class with a private constructor? How do you I construct do, one of those? I can't just do new T? You can't do what new do T. 
doesn't work. <laughs> and in and in languages like Java or C sharp or whatever, of course you can cheat and you can use reflection and all that fun stuff, right? So we're talking about like we're not going to do that kind of thing. Right. Even that's like reaching outside of your bounds, right? You're you're pulling in functions that you don't own. Sure, I wouldn't say it violates purity in the strict sense because you're not mutating anything, but it certainly is in violation of sort of the spirit of pure functions. Right. Right. Well, and, it doesn't it doesn't have everything it needs to operate. It has to. Oh yeah, that's true. You got to go like to query the system, some... like type lookup system thing. Yeah, like, absolutely. Like it has to go write a letter to Congress and then eventually get. That's know, a good point. You could argue a, that a, a function. Back. A function that does this via reflection could like depend on some DLL that's not been loaded and then it explodes because, you know, the type it was trying to reflect and look up wasn't there, you know, and, so, and thus there's an external dependency kind of a thing with reflection, potentially. To be clear, when we're saying we take T, we, we return a T, the T that we return has to be the exact same type? It has to be the exact same value. Yes, T, it, T is the same type for sure. Okay, okay. But, but specifically yeah. in this foo case, the value of type T that was passed in is mm -hmm. the value that will be returned because we can't construct a new one. We don't know what it is and we can't not return it. because we said we were going to return it and we're pure. So we don't throw exceptions or any of that nonsense. Right, we're not going to return null. And, and there's no null. <laughs> speaking, exactly. of, uh, speaking of nonsense. So this is kind of interesting. We now have a function that we don't even have to look at the implementation. We know what that function does. Oh, there is only one correct implementation. I, I want to play devil's advocate for a moment. Sure. So what if what if I constrain my type and say it has to be a string or a number or some other literal value? Okay, so it's a concrete type now. Well, I mean, you could potentially derive from those, right? Or when you say derive, I don't quite follow. Can you not have like um, any kind of subtype data or anything like that? There's no interface for like there's no base class for like numbers in okay. that I know of in C sharp or Java. Like maybe I have an ADT that is a of string or of a of number um kind of we haven't talked about those okay yet i'll not say but that um i i kind of get what you're going for here um let's not talk about that quite yet okay because uh, i think there's three there's three interesting cases here it's a i have a fully polymorphic type parameter mm -hmm. so so i have a function from a to a now let's swap it around now i have a function from int to int what can you tell me about it's still foo but we just change it instead of a to a it's int to int what do we know about this function? Well, we can pull in constants into these, right? Well, sure. I mean, I feel like you could have a function that just added five because you know you have an int, so you know you can perform operation on it. Yep, you could just add five to it. It could return. It could pass the value straight through, like the previous one. That that would be a valid implementation, right? It could return a constant, like Logan was saying. You mean like the last time it was called previous value, or what was passed in? But what was passed in? Okay. Okay. Sorry, what I I meant that was like what we were discussing with the A to A example. We yeah. could do that same thing here. That would still be valid. We know it's an int, but we could just pass the int through. Right. If we I'm want sticking to. with my last answer. I'm going to try it again. All we know is we're getting an int back this time. <laughs> OK. But we can. But we, there's significantly more implementations. Before there was one, now there's effectively infinite implementations. They all return an int, but we could add one, subtract one, add two, subtract zero, two, <laughs> up mm -hmm. to you know the range of ints. We could multiply, we could divide, we could return a constant, any constant. These are all things we could do. Yeah, you couldn't return a constant from uh, in, uh, basically in any type, right? Correct. If it's because a you don't a, know where that constant is, and that has to be a static reference. Yeah, we can't fabricate an A. So it's the same, same kind of idea. We, we, we can't construct a new one. Right. 
Right, but we know we can construct an ant. And construct so we, we also have all kinds of things we can do. Yeah. Exactly. We know enough that we could construct an int. Exactly. It's still pure, so we can't like get a random number or something like that. But we could construct a constant. We could just grab seven and return that every time. Right. And That'd be totally valid. So and another thing to point out is like when we get that A, even if somehow we could access if our language allowed us to construct values dynamically, we still wouldn't know what that type signature is. Like we, um, we couldn't statically resolve that. Uh, yeah, it would be a runtime thing using reflection. Yeah, yeah, and it, that's way outside of like if you're tr if you're gonna say that's a pure function, you're definitely not in the spirit anymore of pure functions. Right. <laughs> so don't yeah, yeah don't do that and then complain that your your stuff is weird. Um, so we have we have very extremely different uh, characteristics for these two functions. In one, in the in the a to a case, we have exactly one implementation, and in the int to int case, we have effectively infinite implementations, just because we know what the type is. And that's, less, that's a huge difference. And you might be thinking, I write a lot of functions that are just, you know, I'll just plop the, the static types in. I, I do a lot of functions where I, I have fully static types at every point in my function. And that's, that's normal. Like, I think that everyone writes a lot of code like that. The point I want to bring up with this parametric polymorphism is that there are, there's a trade-off to that. Like often we don't think that there's a cost in the same way that no one really talks about the cost of having null until we had our big discussion about why null maybe is not, you know, as uh, carefree and lackadaisical as you might think. There actually is this hidden cost that that sort of doesn't get brought up. There's a cost to being specific. So concreteness has a cost, and that cost is over, uh, like over specification. Um, if you over-specify something, you, it's sort of like premature optimization. You're prematurely committing to a single representation, which means you have zero flexibility down the road to do something different. Now, I remember reading a, a blog post by John DeGoes. Mm -hmm. that it, the title paraphrased is, if, you, if your variable names are not X, Y, Z, A, B, C, that kind of thing, you're doing something wrong. Yes, this, he is making this point that you are over specific, overly specific. If you can come up with a reasonable variable name that's not ABC, because it means you know something about your types. It means you know enough about your types to come up with a reasonable name, which means you've committed to an, uh, a representation. It's, it's worth pointing out, like, you know, when I started jumping into lots of Ramda stuff and everything, um, and just dabbling a little bit in PureScript and Haskell, the amount of genericness is kind of baffling when you first jump into it. But I mean, it's like when you when you really start coming down to it, a lot of our imperative code, like we write tons of imperative code, that's the same. It's always been the same. And the only thing that makes it different is it, it like accesses a different name of a property on something. So you're talking about two functions whose implementation is basically exactly the same, but they might have a different type. Right. So like every bean property that's ever been written in, in Java is repetition. Because it's just a getter for an int or a string or a float or something like that. Right. And if your functional language lets you, um, I think you can use lenses to do this, where you can basically say, I have a function that goes and gets these values. And now all of a sudden you can transpose that function with other functions. You can compose yeah. them, yeah, into a bigger function. Mm -hmm. well, well, or you can swap them out with other functions that grab different names. 
Absolutely. Right? Yes. And those are very parametrically. Right. And then, and then when you want to take one of those lenses, you basically, you don't code against any specific type. You go and say, I want just a lens. I want this thing that just go grabs another thing and gives it back to me. Yeah. And, and to give a more like a, to kind of fix this, hopefully, so people can understand what we're talking about here. Let's see if a, a record, like like a hash table or an object structure. So you have a foo and it contains a bar field. And then inside that is some other structure. And inside there's a baz. So you might type foo.bar.baz to get at the baz thing, right? That's hopefully everyone's done something like that. In um, what Logan's talking about is you can create a, a foo lens that works on any kind of like objecty, recordy thing and a bar lens and a baz lens, and then you can hook them together. And now I can traverse down foo.bar.baz and do things like get the value, set the value, map the value, all that kind of stuff. But I could also do foo.bar2.baz, and I can reuse the foo of the baz because those are those are generic, but put a bar2 in there, and now I'm traversing down a different path, foo.bar2.baz. Yeah. But I didn't have to like go write a new version of this. I didn't have to write a full like foo.bar.baz, you know, it only goes down this one path getter kind of a thing. And then a foo bar two baz function that's completely separate, except that, you know, it's almost exactly the same, except for this one little part of the path is different. I don't have to rewrite those functions over and over. I can do them once. It's like when we first started dabbling in uh, link, um, how many times did we use the equivalent of map? And all it would do was grab a concrete named property out. Oh, like extract something off an object like, kind of thing? Get, yeah. Go go over all of these people and give me their ages right? right. as a new list. And it's mm -hmm. like that that predicate that you hand the the map could have been a, a lens instead. And if it were a lens, sure. then it would, it would be a more powerful, reusable thing. Yep. And you could use the lens outside of that context even. Right. So how would the lens, so I'm not totally following. So in the case, let's do with customer and ages, because I, I sometimes like the concrete examples a little better. Does that example work well uh, sure. as an example of what a lens might be? And so what are we saying we're doing with lens? Are we just specifying that? So lenses is perhaps a bad uh, thing here because they're um, a little more on the complex end of the spectrum because they are fairly sophisticated from like a type system machinery perspective. But you can think of it as, if if it's if a function is sufficiently polymorphic, it can be used in a whole bunch of contexts, including contexts that you have no knowledge of and right. can't possibly predict. So in the lens example, imagine a getter, a magical standalone getter hmm. called um, name, and you can use that function, pass in any object that has a name property in C sharp or field or whatever it is, and you'll hmm. get the name out. And it doesn't matter with the type of the name. Name could be string in one case. It could be an object in another case. It could be an int. It could be a whatever. But you'll mm -hmm. get the name back out. So the the sort of the type of the lens is like a is like object containing a field named name of type A to A, if that kind right. of makes sense. Right. But you're you're saying that even the name field doesn't have to be a string. The name field could be yes. You're yeah. saying so you... that's why it's an object containing a name field of type A to A. It just has to, yeah, exactly. Like you don't a even know being, what kind of thing it is. Right. And, and then so you take it to the next generic step of saying, well, instead of coding this to just take name, we'll code it to take anything, right? And then we can make well, that Well, uh, lenses are well, actually You specific. have to have a, a base function, right? Like you have to have call, like in the example you're talking about, I'm imagining you're saying you're calling this name function. Right, but I'm saying like map, then, for example, could say, I just take a function that has this 
this this parametric. Uh... I, I take one of these lensy things, yeah. and then I know how to go map the thing at the other end. So now you can map over the name field of any object that has a name, regardless of its type. Right. And that kind of reuse does not happen in like a C sharp or Java. Like we we cannot. Um, the type system actually just won't allow us to express um, express that. But also, we generally aren't thinking in terms of things like right. that. So I'd, I'd like to kind of like dial this down a little bit. We're off into lenses, which is like where even Haskell people start to get like scared. Uh, so if you if you want to see more of this in a in a safer context, maybe uh, I think the Ram to lenses that Logan's mentioning is a good way to ease into that. Um, yeah. When you see them formulated in a static language, they will seem a little bit different, like a pure script or an Elm or Haskell. But they uh, they seem very intimidating, but they're actually not. Just don't use the silly operators that they have. They have all these like custom <laughs> operators, and just just use the the functions. Just use overview and set. I think my, it is in, my use in Haskell. My in Ramda has been very shallow so far. I haven't like composed them yet or anything like that. But gotcha. Yeah. So so what we're talking about here is we've got functions that by knowing nothing about the type, we know everything about the implementation. <laughs> Think about it a second. The less we know about the type, the more we know about what it does. The more we know about the type, the less we know about what it does. There's an inverse relationship here. So, so why is this? And we're talking about like different levels of infinity here. Like, well, as soon as we specify anything about the type, like it's very possible we have infinity. And then as we get more specific on our type. Well, okay, now there's a bigger number of infinity options it could be. Not but necessarily, because I, I could give you an interface that only mm -hmm. has one operation on it, and and that's yeah, not so, construct a new value. Yeah, you're not going to necessarily get infinity from the first step, is what you're saying? Correct. Um, but I also think, like, a function that takes A and returns A, or takes T and returns T, is useless. It's not actually useless. I actually use identity not fairly often. That's called the identity function, by the way, mm -hmm. function that returns the value that was passed. I I do use that one, and I even use more the one that we were going to talk about next. Let's just take this and let's go one teeny little bit step more. I have a function that takes an A and a B, and returns an A. Or in C sharp, this takes a T and a T two, and returns a T. What do we know about this function? And B is just another generic type, right? Yep. A T and T2 are yep. both generic types. It takes um, two different parameters of two different types, A and B, and it returns an A. It could do a lot of things, right? It could compose them together, however it is that it works, like it's two lists and you concatenate them and return the result. Um, it could select one of the... Concatenate generics, though? Well, you might, you would have to specify some... No, no, know, you, you got an oh, A that's it? and a B. That's, okay. that's it. I don't know what you can do. I mean, again, novice here, but I don't know what you can do when you just have total generics. Like, I feel like you're just going to give them back the A and ignore the yeah, B. Yeah, you, you could only you could only choose one of them, right? Well, and you, you don't actually get to choose one of them. Right. I can tell you exactly the code you're going to write to get that to compile, because you can't pass me back B. Because B might not be the same type as A. Exactly. Oh, yeah. There's okay. absolutely no guarantee oh, that I B is the same that. type as A. Got it. It's an A and a B and returns an A. So we have to give back the A. So it's just like identity, except that it takes two parameters now. And you might go, OK, this is even more ridiculously useless, because now it takes two parameters and does the same thing as the identity, which it's only took useless. one. It's not useless. It helps make my room warm at night. Come on. <laughs> this function is called const. 
because no matter what the second value is, it always goes back to first. I have this in production code. So, Do you get paid by line or character, perhaps? <laughs> I don't. Uh, that would be a bad trade-off for most functional programming, because it's usually very concise. So is this like a release valve where it's like, I've, I'm going to be getting an A and a B, and I actually don't care about B? That's exactly where you want to use it. I have this shape that says, I'm going to pass you two things, and I just want the first thing. And this is a function I can pass in that basically says, yes, OK, fine, you're going to pass me two things. I need to fit that shape, clearly. But I just want the first thing back. So this is like a pass through, just hands you back the first thing. And that actually is useful. Um, it will be even more useful when we combine it with another concept that we're going to talk about soon called partial application, which is where the context in which I used it. But these things actually do find usages. I had never heard of that concept prior to coming to, to like pure functional programming in like pure script and Haskell. But being here now, <laughs> I, I do find uses for this and not like strained, like, man, I've been looking for a use case for this for like three months. Like, wow, the, the perfect thing. If I were to go write a thing, it would just be const. That, that is the thing I want to use here. I think it's really good that this is not our first episode because uh, if I were listening, I'd be like, all right, these guys are crazy. I'm out of here. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Pressing the eject button. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you have some convincing to do here. So you've done good so far. You've, you've got a little trust, but this sounds ridiculous and useless. Okay. So uh, it's going to be a little bit difficult to like build a super compelling case for this if you haven't uh, had a chance to sort of be in an environment where you have enough tools to kind of all come together because a lot of these pieces by themselves are interesting, but maybe not super useful. And it's when you combine a lot of them together that it becomes really powerful. Yeah, it reminds me of like this game where you're, you've got to filter stuff out and there's a little tool that has, takes in two things and puts it down into, into one pipe all of a sudden and just shuts off the flow of the other one. Like, yes. Okay. Well, in the real world, that's useful, but this is programming. This isn't the real world. Right. So. I think when you've got static types involved, it becomes much more important to have something like this, um, the const, right? Const, because you have to match the mm -hmm. shape of things. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the stuff in, because um, static. So it's like th this thing's going to yield back a function that has this shape to it. And I don't actually care about the second thing. So I'm just going to provide you somewhat of a dummy function that just plucks out the first thing. Yeah. Effectively, you could take a function that's going to pass in two parameters and adapt it to be a function that instead of it expecting those two parameters, it just hands you the one. You're kind of like doing an adapter kind of thing. If you think of this as pipes, you're kind of like putting a cap on one of them and allowing the second one to pass through and adapting it to yeah. the shape so, that you need. Um, I, I don't know how much you've run into this, Aaron, but if you're ever using link and you're doing collect and it's friends, you might notice that it can, there's some difficulty with composing them together, or you always have to write a lambda because you never have a function available that does the thing that you want it to do in that map. Um, in the functional world, you usually do have a function that you can use tools to kind of massage it into something that map will agree with. And I think what Dave's saying here is const got used in a similar way in his application. Yes, it, it exactly fit the shape that I wanted it to have. This is similar to tools like flip. Like flip is another one of these things that sounds ridiculous. It takes a function and it flips the order of the parameters. We have a function that takes an A and a B. Now did it takes a B and an A. Your const? Okay. I did not use flip with my const. But I have to the B cases. instead. And I've certain it, yeah, exactly. If you want the B instead, you could you could do it that way.
So uh, those are very small tools. And in isolation, they're interesting, but not particularly useful. And it's when you kind of have an ecosystem of these things all together that they start to become really useful. So let's, okay. let's, let's keep talking about um, uh, sort of the bigger the bigger idea here. So we have <clears throat> we had a function that takes an A and a B, returns an A. We know for sure what that function does. It has to return the A, right? There's only one possible implementation of that function. So we could go one more step. Now we have a function that takes an A and an A and returns an A. How many possible implementations are there here? I know, I know, two. Two, okay. It can return A number one or A number two. Okay, and will it always pick the same one? Whichever implementation it is decided on, will it yes. always be that? Uh, it has to, yeah. There's no, it has no way of comparing them, so. It's yeah, it can't compare them, and it can't randomly pick between them. Const, it has but right. you can hard code it to one or the other. Yeah, it's const, but you get to pick, well, it's, it's yeah, exactly. You, you could make a pick left or pick so, right, and that's all you can do. Yeah. Exactly. You're either going to return the first one or the second one, and yeah. you pick. But you know, so we know less about that function, but we certainly know more than if it was an int and an int. Right. So the right. reason why it matters that it's generic versus concrete is, let's say, it's some object that you're getting in that has some bool parameter on it, and you can check that bool parameter, not parameter, a property. You can check that bool property and say, based on its outcome, I will return the first or the second. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing is, is we're saying we just get an A and an A, and we know absolutely nothing about it. So we can't go reach in and grab those properties. Exactly. We cannot base the thing that we return on either of the two values. And this really is, this really is for static languages, and oh. generics need not apply here, uh, or metaprogramming oh. need not apply here. Where, yeah, where you yeah, reach yeah. in and this say, is, you know, sans, modulo, all yeah. metaprogramming stuff. So okay, so let's let's go one more step. Let, let's keep keep building out, right? So now we have a list of T or list of A to let's say A. List list of A to A. Mm -hmm. Does that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, it makes sense. I'm trying to figure out what what am I do. I give you a list yeah. of A. You give me back an A. Okay. So this uh, probably people have run into functions like this before. You know, kind of get get the first thing out of the list. Is that, get the is that legal? front head. As a, as a type signature? What do you mean? Get me something out of well, the list. What if, Why? The list contains A's. I'm gonna what if it's an empty list? So, and it seems like head, head is an example of this. But uh, yeah, that was my question too, is can you have an empty list? Is an empty list a list of A? Uh, in FP? In anything. I think it's can, not. Can you have an empty list of ints in, in C Sharp? Yes. Same thing null. in Haskell. You can have an empty list of A's. Or actually not even null, sorry. Yes. OK, so you can. So are you yes. saying this is a problem? Why? Uh, I I guess if you know it's a list, you could query its size. But if it's not, if its size is zero, then what are you going to do? You can't construct an identity value to hand back. You can't. You're in the same boat as identity. You cannot make a new A because you don't know anything about A. You can't hand, can't hand anything back. So that type signature, if you see that type signature, you point at its author and you say, bad programmer, no cookie. You made a boo-boo. The only thing that function can do is throw an exception <laughs> or return null or something like that. But but even that kind of demands that you'd have to know something about that structure, right? Like it would have it would have to support null. What do you mean? 
or or nothing or none. Oh, whatever. yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a good point. If it's like, um, I don't think that that can compile in a functional language, a typed functional language. Yeah, certainly in, in any of the typed like functional languages, that doesn't compile, right? Um, and so you you could return a maybe in that in that case. You'd though, have right? to know a maybe. A. You'd have to know that yeah, it was oh, yeah, a maybe. It'd be a list of a to maybe a. Now that one you can do some work right. with, but that would be valid. Now we're okay. Yeah. Okay. And and so given the type signature list of a to maybe a, what do we know? I would imagine this is head's signature. This is head. Yes. Or this is tail, or you know. Whatever. We know it's turning one of the or, elements, or nothing. basically. Right. Oh. Okay, so it's going to... Or, yeah, that's it, true. It could just always return not... You know, so it could, it could the, kind of cont-style just return nothing well, every time? If, if you know that it's, you're taking a list and you can return a maybe of A, then you can say, is my, does my list have more than one element in it? It does? Okay, great. Get one at, this, at the front or at the back or whatever. Um... If yeah. it doesn't, then it return maybe. Or right, and you could do that for a number of different mm -hmm. scenarios. But you could say always give me the it. fifth element. Well, there is no if it yeah if it, it doesn't have one. a fifth yeah. element, so now you have to return nothing. So we know a lot about the list. We can do a lot of listy things. We can ask for its length and grab you know any anything up to its length. We could return nothing every time. We could always return the first thing, etc. So we know because we know a lot about list, we're kind of unconstrained in that aspect but the a we hand back we know came out of that list somewhere you know the, if we get back a just yes. value we know it had to have come from the original list so we at least know that much and we know that of course list of a to a is balder dash that that's a totally illegitimate signature unless there's no. some other constraint kind of thing well, going we're on. starting to get to a part where i right. can feel like i'm sorry to interrupt you Logan. starting to get to a point where i can feel like okay this is somewhat useful i could see actually using this is the constructor for a maybe or any other data type really are those just functions like they're not like a special function like oh treats them usually like a special function yeah they're just functions okay that, so, that's why they're called data constructors and we'll get to a whole episode about that but those are just functions yeah so, so you could hypothetically take a list of a and map it and your predicate is simply the maybe data constructor and oh, that wouldn't you... be a predicate because predicates return bool a predicate is a function that returns bool. Oh, is it? Okay. True or false. But your, but your mapping function yeah. could turn it in. Yeah. Your higher order function. Yep. Right? Yep. And and yeah, so like you wouldn't even have to implement anything. You would just, oh, I already have this function. Boom. Now I have maybes. I sort of see what you're getting at there. Yeah. Um, a list of maybe A's. Let me, let me keep pushing forward. Yeah. So we got a couple more layers to go cool. here. Um, what do we know that the list didn't do or that that function didn't do with the A. So we, we said the A has to have come from the list. Do we know that it came directly out of that list and was handed back to us? Could could it have been changed? It has to be from the yeah, list. Yeah, immutable. We don't, have, we don't have any way to construct it. We don't have any information about it. So yeah, it's from the list. So no operations could be done to that A. So we, what we, we know a lot about the list, and we could do listy things, but one thing the list that this function is not allowed to do is touch our A. So it can only pass it through. This is interesting because this means that there's a lot more power than perhaps we, you know, and more than I originally thought when we were looking at uh, static uh, functional languages and stuff. I would say a lot less power. So yeah, it's interesting you say that. Well, uh, the as in like you can lean on the type system very heavily, and because you can just see this type signature, 
just the signature alone tells you a lot about what you can mm -hmm. do with it. Yes, right? that is. And, and so I actually agree. There's a lot of power. It's the power to reason about your programs. Knowledge, right. knowledge is power. Is Looking at the type. Knowledge is power. So by seeing the type signature of something, you know, in some cases, I mean, it depends on the language and the specifics, but in some cases, you do know a lot more than you would expect. And this is why purity and immutability are requirements for this. We, if, if we threw out the purity clause and the immutability clause, could we still make these assertions Absolutely about our, our functions? Yeah. No. So it only holds, like those are the underpinnings. That's why we hammered them so hard and for so long. And I keep coming back to them because without that, the whole thing falls down. So this has always been like a point of confusion for me. And I feel like this discussion is shedding some light on it is whenever I, you know, I've attended some static uh, language talks and that kind of thing. And I've noticed that there's this intense focus on type signatures. And I'm like, that's a cool type signature, I guess, but it doesn't, I don't know anything about what that does. And I guess when you actually go and say like, no, you can't do anything with that. Well, now there's actually a very limited number of things you can do with it. It's very important to communicate the type signature. And if it's like this super generic thing that doesn't have constraints to it, then, you know, you, you can almost look at the signature and understand what it does. Yeah, in many cases there is only like a handful of actual implementations. Yeah. And you can and and there's certain properties that hold across all of them. Like we were saying, that a value if it's returned in the maybe in in the just part of the maybe uh, will for sure have been a value directly out of the list unadulterated passed straight through. Yeah. So, so we we know a lot about uh, kind of what's going on, even though we have, <laughs> and we only know that because our type is generic. Again, we have a list of ints. So we have a function from list of int to int. What do we know now? Virtually nothing. It, right. it returns an int. Returns an int. I'm going to go with Aaron's <laughs> original answer. It returns an int. That's what we know. Does it have to be an int out of the list? Could be some, nope. could be products, could be subtracting them all. I get some negative number. Could be. Could sum yeah. them. It could just ignore them all and just give you back a constant value. Who knows? It could be a random number if I roll the dice first. Yeah, it could be the great XKCD example of, you know, return four. So it's a, it's a pre-compiled random number. Yes. <laughs> yes. It can be that random number. That is pure. So that works. <laughs> See, that, that guy was just a, or gal was just a functional programmer and, and we didn't know it. Okay. So we've talked about uh, that. So let's go uh, one more. We've got a function that goes from list of A to list of A. What do we know about this? Mm, well, you can make list operations on a list. Certainly. We can do anything. We know we have, that's a full concrete type. We can do any so listy kind could, of things. So I could Rearrange give them. you a list that's double the size. Oh, well, that's true too. Right? Yeah. What would we know about that list that's double the size? What's a property that we It would have all the items in the original list. Well, it would, it would, it have would to only have items from the original list, I think. Is... Well, I'm saying if it's doubling. Uh, you, you, you could make one that would selectively pick some items out and then put them in. Uh, maybe it's doing like a take or a, or a skip. But Aaron, yeah, say your thing again. Talk over you a little bit. I was just saying that the only items in that new list are going to be from our old list. Exactly. Yeah. There is no item in the in the output list that was not in the input list, and like Logan's, Logan's saying, sure, it could be the first item repeated a million times or something. Right. You know, mm -hmm. like it could be whatever. It's not going to be random because we're not doing random things, but it could be some orderly kind of every other item or you know something like yep. that. So we, we know less, 
because both in both sides, the input and the output, we have a bit of it is concrete, right? We have lists in both ends. Uh, we could just return an empty list every time. Yeah. That would be valid. So that in this case, we can fabricate. <laughs> That's, That's the only so case. Every point. <laughs> so, but, but no, but Aaron is still correct. Yeah, no, every right. element that exists in the output list existed in the input list. Right. So, you know, again, you wouldn't necessarily assert something like that in C Sharp or, or Java that like, I know, like, that's kind of a weird thing. Like, what are the properties of a list in C? Like, I've never, yeah. ever heard of someone talk about it in that context. I, I remember having a discussion with uh, James Britt about uh, default values that you can put in Ruby. And a okay. default value could be a function call. Okay. Right? Like, and not, not, a, not a function itself necessarily, but it's going to call a function and then stuff that into your default value that becomes the default right and he, he made a, a comment that like oh great now we've got you know we've got this this function that you're going to run which could be a program on, on its own right that that's the format your hard drive an function. entire application that runs yes they've embedded an operating you know, system in the default function of an answer parameter yeah yeah, yeah. Go do all this, you know, that might take minutes and then come back and stuff it in there. Yeah, go talk to the database or yeah. whatever. So again, we're trading, we're, we're on this scale, the sliding scale, the spectrum, amount we know versus uh, things we can do, operation, number of operations we can do. More operations we can do, the less we can do. And so... Uh, and I think it is interesting that... Uh, we're talking through all this, and this is not something I've ever done as a C-sharp programmer, and you mentioned, like, this is something you talk about. But this is not, we're not even taking into account the fact that these methods have names that might or might not be descriptive. This is saying, no, we know this without looking at the name, with only looking at the type, like, not looking at the name of the parameter. None of that is, is even being taken into account. We're just talking about just from the signature, from the type signature of the method. And this is, this is why variable names like X and Y end up getting used. Are... Are, end up getting used is because it's like, well, I take an X or I take an X's. <laughs> yeah. Right? I know it's plural because it's a list of A. Yeah. And I return an, an A, right? Mm -hmm. So so your variable might as well be named X yeah. while you're doing the whole thing because you can't say anything about it. You don't know that it's a string. It's not a name. It's not a book. It's not an author. It's something. Yeah, and you just need something to denote that. You mentioned that earlier, and I think that's you're you're totally you were totally right there. I just think it's interesting that even with like these these parameter names that are that are generic, we still know something about it because of the uh, Haskell. Type of and I would I would imagine the other uh, ML languages support this. Haskell supports the idea of uh, prime, so you, you can you can basically put like a tick mark on your on your variable name, and now that's a new variable, a legitimate variable. Um, so you can have X and then X prime and X double prime if you want to kind of represent different phases in a transformation or something. I, I don't know. Yeah, um, some languages do okay. support that. Interesting. Um, it's debatable if it's a uh, good idea uh, or not. Right, well, <laughs> that's, that's at least the motivation for it, right? Is Yeah, it's to say, here's this sort of, I don't know what that is, but here's the next step in it. Right, kind there's, of a, a, thing. there's yeah. a relation between those maybe. Or, yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's go, uh, we have one more step to go. So we have a list of A. So we have a, a concrete uh, sort of containerish thing parameterized by a generic type. Um, now, can we have, well, okay, sorry, I got two more steps. The next step is we have, can we have a containerish thing parameterized by two types? Can you give me an example of one of those in like C sharp or Java? 
So this would be a, a type, a class that has two type parameters. Like, are we limited to only ever have one? No, you List can have multiple. Has one. Give me an example. Um, a dictionary. Key and value, key dictionary. And value oh. types are different. The, the key is generic. You, you can have any type for your right. key. And the value is also generic. You can have any type right. there. Another example of this would be tuple. Yeah. Yep. Um, or, yeah, it's called tuple as of One four. tuple could, could use that, right? Tuples have multiple types. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a two element tuple, the three element tuple yeah. form. The it, the two in tuple does not mean two. two. But 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 that is <laughs> it's, it's, some un, people untuple. Untuple there would work. Tuple. Say that again. A, a, a any that particular uh, rendition of a tuple would work. The tuple two or tuple yeah. three or whatever. Yeah, so there's there's different numbers for different uh, numbers of uh, parameters. Yeah. So if you have a, a tuple that has the two element, it would take two type parameters, but then there's a tuple three that has three type parameters because you're going to have three elements and any of them could be anything, right? It could be int string int or int 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 or string 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 or invoice game state and database connection or, you know what I mean? Like this is anything, right? Anything you can put in there. Uh, as crazy as like if you look at the C-sharp code, they actually like implement every Up to one like, of those nine or something <laughs> yeah i think like at nine they're just like no you, you need to go make an object yeah it's, it's a little ridiculous that i don't think i've ever seen a tuple more than three I, I or think four most elements that, like there's no justification for that yeah a little yeah. silly but that, so those are examples of you have a concrete type parameterized by more than one generic type right so so clearly this is something we do even in c sharp and java and, and c plus plus and those sorts of things dictionary is probably the canonical canonical example so that's fine. We can do that. Um, for dictionary, you know, what do we know about a dictionary that's parameterized by these two types? And, and when we say dictionary, we mean a hash table, associative array, key value pair kind of a thing, yeah. right? That's what we mean by dictionary. Um, so do we know anything there? If we have a, a function from dictionary to dictionary, you know, a dictionary of AB to dictionary of AB, it's harder to say anything, right? right? I mean, you know that it can't invert the values. As you could say that. Oh, uh, you mean like put a B in the A, right? Like put you, a value you can't in the swap key. The key in the value position. Right. Definitely, yeah. but it could like reassociate them with each other. It yeah. could take take all the A's and the B's and kind of like flip their order and reassociate why them. Why can't you switch the um? Why can't you switch the key value pairs? I'm confused because I thought they were both just generics. Because you said that one is of type A and one is of type B. They are two different types. So if you if you were turning, you know. Uh, the same the same order of parameters that oh you i see what you're saying with. yeah it's dictionary of a to b and then you're the key will always a be a and the value will always be b yeah you're right and okay. technically those could be the same type you could construct a dictionary of string and string but you can't prove to the compiler that in all cases they will be the same type right. it's not a dictionary yeah of a and i was a. thinking maybe dictionary so, of a and b to dictionary of c and d but that's not what we're talking about so my my bad yeah. uh, that that would be a different type signature. Yeah. Um, that by itself would we would not be able to implement. So if you see a, a function of type dictionary AB to dictionary CD, and that's the entire signature, that's impossible. You've got you've got um, something you can't possibly compile. Well, I, I guess sorry, there is one implementation. Just return what you got, right? You can return an empty dictionary. What about returning what you got? But no, but that's an A and a B, and you said you were going to give back a C but and a D. C and a D is just generic. Right? What, it, what could if, be anything? Yeah, but you don't. How do you construct a D? The, the caller gets to determine what the types of A, B, C, and D are. Yeah, okay. not the function. The function has to abide by anything that's passed in. 
So the function is completely at the mercy of whatever code yeah. is calling it. Okay. And so um, there are situations that are kind of like that, um, which we'll talk about here in just a second. Um, but if we had a dictionary that was A and B to A and B, we could say, okay, it can, it's a dictionary, so it knows about these keys and these values and internally somehow it's storing them. And maybe it reassociates the A's with the B's in some weird way, or it reverses one of the lists or something like that, right? But there's, you know, kind of a finite number of things that can be done yeah. here. It could, uh, yeah, could pick one, the first A and return that along with its B or, you know, but fa fairly limited list. Okay, so we've got functions with uh, polymorphic types. We've got functions with a concrete type that's parameterized by a polymorphic type. We've got functions with concrete types that are parameterized by more than one polymorphic type. Hopefully everyone can see where the next step is coming. We have a function with a type, a polymorphic type that's parameterized by a polymorphic type. Say that one more time, please. And this is where people's, this is where people's heads explode. So we've got list of A, okay? So we have a concrete type and a polymorphic type. The next step is to make the list thing also right, polymorphic. Any, any container -y type thing. So now we have, we don't have a list of A, we have an F of A. This is the point at which your intuition about C-sharp will end because C-sharp cannot express this. This is called a higher kinded type, and this does not exist outside of uh, a couple languages, unfortunately. And we were even looking at this, to, uh, we were talking about this earlier and did a little bit of research and it doesn't look like Flow supports those yet. And it's not quite on their roadmap yet either. Yes, unfortunately F-sharp and Elm and a couple languages that are firmly in the static functional programming camp do not support this. But Scala does, Haskell does, PureScript does. So we have um, F of A, and it could be a list, but and it's not necessarily a collection, though. It could be anything, right? That's correct. It might be a maybe. Yep. Um, that's very common use for this. So if we have a function that's F of A to F of A, what do we know about that? <laughs> well, they have to be the same. The F would have to be the same type. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you passed in, say, for instance, a list, you'd have to get back a list. Certainly. I think I think you're again, it feels to me like you're right. That same example the first time where you got to return what you got. This is identity. This is higher kinded identity. Because, you you know, F is generic and A, and a is generic. And so you only have. You know nothing about F. You know nothing about A. It's similar to like, it's similar to just having, you know, passing A and B and returning A and B. It's the same kind of idea. It's just we're formatting it differently. The F of A thing is weird. When you see F of A, it's so unlike anything you've ever seen before. Even though, like, when you think about it, list of A to list of A, and then you just kind of remove the list, put an F in there, it's not really that much different, but it just seems so foreign. I think this is where people have a real hard time, and the Haskell-like weird type system stuff comes in. Like, when you start seeing this kind of thing, like Logan was talking about being hyper-generic and seeing, like, it's just, like, abstract everything you know like i have no idea yeah. what's going on but it, there's a reason for this this is still useful so by itself f of a to f of a is like identity you just pass the value through can't actually do much that's that's very interesting here this is where the whole like constraint thing really comes in because if you have constraints on the a part that's interesting you know you know that maybe um you know, we we have some way of combining them, right? We have a combiny kind of function. And so you have like a list of A's where A is mm -hmm. combinable, right? 
Well, now we know we can do something like sum them all together by combining them. Maybe that's not really, sum is a bad word there. We can combine them all and give back an A. How, how right? can we do that? How can we get the A's out, though, of the F? Oh, sorry. I, I, I'm talking about in the case of, if we would go back to a list of A, oh, I'm sorry. where okay. we know a little bit more about the A, we know the A's are combinable. Right. We can't make new A's. We just talked about what happens if we get two lists of A's together and what we can do with those to produce a new list of A's. Yeah, gotcha. And there's a number of things we can do. Whereas if we know more if about it's the an A's. F of A and another F of A to an F of A, we can't really do anything with that. No, nothing really truly meaningful. Right. right, F of A and F of A to F of A. Yeah, that would That's just be a like const again. Um, again, a yeah. higher kind of const. But I'm talking about, let's, I'm, I'm sort of backing up yeah. slightly to where we have a concrete list mm -hmm. of A. And so we know a lot about lists, right? We know, know everything about lists. And the A, we yeah. know just a little bit. We know about this one thing it can do. They can We can combine them. Now we can do things like, Instead of just passing back one element or, you know, a pseudo randomish element, um, we could hand back all the elements combined, right? We could combine them together. That's an operation we can do. Even though we can't fabricate a new A, we can combine them in some way. So that's, there's a, a handful of sort of interesting things we can do where we know just a little bit about the type. And, and this, again, I think is where, like, this parametric polymorphism thing doesn't seem very useful in C-sharp because... That end of it, the, the constraint on the A is not super interesting. The interesting part is the constraint on the F. That is a really interesting space. So an example of this might be, because um, we want to go between, we know nothing about it. We know nothing about F. We actually can't really do anything except return it, sort of in the similar to the, uh, to the identity example, right? Like in the, before, when we, when we had um, any sort of useful thing beyond just returning the value straight through, it was all because we knew something about the structure of like the list, like the container thing, right? It wasn't because we knew structure about the A. So if we have an F of A, we're really not going to get very far. We can't do much with a purely, you know, uh, polymorphic F. But if we know even just a little bit about the F, we can now start to do interesting things. So the first example I'd like to give is, what if we knew that f had a function? Okay, so it's basically, think of this as the where clause on our on our type, right? Um, and our, the interface, I'm going to air quote interface, the interface that it implements has a single function, and that function, I'm not going to tell you what the name is, but this is the signature. a to b and f of a to f of b. So a to b and f of a to f of b. So you give me an a to b function, an f of a, I'll give you back an f of b. It implements that function. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It does. It does. It does. It to does. Me. I'm trying to think. That function. Yeah. You have an a to b function. So let's think about this. I have an f of a, and I know it's able to participate in this function, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, I can do, I can pass it into this operation. This operation works for my f, right? Because if I say I have an a to b and an f of a, and I give you back an f of b, well, that can't work for every possible F, right? There's going to be some F out there for which this doesn't work. So when, I, when I'm talking about this, I'm saying uh, my F is constrained in a way that it has an implementation of this in which the F of A that we're talking about works for my F. I'm, I'm drawing a okay. blank with this because... Well, let's, let's think about what it could possibly do. Okay. Let's not even worry about the name. I've got a function that goes from an A to a B. Do, do I know what A is or B? No, we have no idea, but we have a function that given an A will give back a B. And we don't know what those types are, but we can pass, we, if we can put, if we had an A, which we can't construct, mm. but if we could be provided an A somehow, we could put it in that function and get out a B, 
that's something we are capable of doing. That's fine. That we don't need to know anything about the types in order to use that function. And then we have an f of a. Okay. So could we take the a from the f of a, put it in the function? So you could get out of here. I, I don't know if I'm answering this question properly, but you could make uh, essentially a map of maybe a's to maybe b's this way. Uh, th this is map. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It sounds this like this is the function map. Is you know. It's select, yeah, same thing, same, exactly. So the way map works is it says it's confusing. we implement map for a specific F, right, for a specific type. And we say, for this type, we know how to, given a function from A to B, take the A out of us, whether that's a single A or a list of A's or whatever. This is, wait, so this is map itself. This is not, um, this isn't what you would pass map. I mean, what you pass map is included in this. Yeah, yeah, this is the signature of map. And map has to be implemented for the type that you're interested in, right? Like this this type implements this interface and thus has a map function kind of like specialized to it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like there's going to be a different map for different Fs. Mm -hmm. So list is going to have a map and maybe it's going to have a map and dictionary is going to have a map, but they all have this shape. They all have this A to B and an F of A gives you back an F of and B. And I think um, if I'm understanding properly, in, uh, in C-sharp and in, in uh, languages with map to and JavaScript to, you kind of tell it how to go from A to B. There's not, you're not like giving it a function. Like in part, as part of calling map, you're saying like, okay. No, you are giving it a function. You could go write a function that goes from one, one thing to another, and that can be passed as the function to map. Or, or Yes, yeah, map. I follow you. But I think, usually, I think usually, well, maybe that's just me. I think usually I just am writing it in line. Right. But maybe you I, I suggest you stop yeah. doing that. It's a lot easier to test the higher order function just in isolation on its own. Sure, sure. You, you mean it's easier to test the map right. mapping function, right. the one that you're passing into the map. So that itself is not uh, higher order, just to be clear. Map you. is the higher order function because yeah. it takes another function as a primary. Yeah. Uh, but I, Logan's right. It, it's hard to test. It's like now I have to make a list. It's inline, and, and it's hard. You don't have a reference to it. List. Yeah, yeah. If, you, exactly, if you're doing anything, well, I usually am not writing anything I need to test. But I agree. I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So if it's part of the bigger thing and you're going to test the whole operation and it's just part of it, then you could test it kind of at plus, a bigger plus you level. Plus, stand a chance of actually reusing it. Yeah, that's that. No, you make a fair point there. I'm... And this is where having the toolbox of slice and dice function bits, like flip and all that fun stuff, comes in handy because often you can grab one off the shelf, tweak it, and plop it into uh, something like that. One more thing to add too, if it's a standalone function. Um, it doesn't allow you to pull in the closured scope, which restricts what you can do with the function. The closured scope is the is the local scope. Like when you when you go and reach out of the lambda itself and grab variables that are the step above its scope, that's that's a that's that's a closure that you've created at that point. And um, C sharp doesn't distinguish between closures and lambdas. Um, it just generically uses Lambda to apply to all of it, which could include closured scopes or not. Right. You're, you're definitely more explicit with a standalone like static function that's pure. Yeah. So now, now like you can see everything that comes into it, and you know exactly what's coming out of it. And if you have good discipline of making it pure, then you know now you've got easy stuff to work with. Although to be fair, most usage of Lambdas are 
at the trivial end of the spectrum. <laughs> so it's it's often not a big deal. Yeah, that's I think. why I'm that's why I'm kind of nodding my head and going, "Yep, oh, I'll definitely do that." And I'm not ever planning to do it, but I'll just tell you <laughs> that I will. <laughs> okay. So so if we have these high, assuming we have these higher kinded types, and we can put a constraint on them. Then we can say our f has a map function. If our f has a map function, then we can uh, use it in conjunction with map, and we can pass in right. you know it, it's the f of a right, and we, we have to we have to get an a to b function from somewhere, so it has to be passed in as well. And if we can do that, we can now produce an f of b. And it's worth mentioning that list uh, is something that you can map over, um, but so does maybe yes, which might seem a little weird to like, hey, yeah, there's only like one element in there. And it's like, well, there's kind of two-ish. Well, there's one element that can be in two states, sort of. This is still all confusing for me. And so hopefully I'm not the only one. And there's some viewers out there that are confused too. Um, but it's weird to say like F, you're returning this F of B when you don't know what the F is. That's right. And that's the point. So you don't know what the F is. I'm trying to figure out, like I'm still kind of wrapping my head around this idea that, okay, we have a function that takes an A. And we tell it how to go from A to B. And so we can return a function that takes a B. Right? That's a, that's another way of saying what's happening. It's not a function. Off? Um, right. It's a... F? He's saying F of A is a function. F of A is not a function. F of A is a type. This, this is, Aaron, this has also generated a lot of confusion for me. I remember my school days where okay. you have F of X, and it would be the little funky curly F. And they use the exact same yeah, glyph. Yeah, that's not what we're talking about here. They're writing it freehand or whatever uh in the in the type mm -hmm. signatures uh you just got to detach yourself from that and just understand that that's not i see you're thinking of this as f with x with a as a parameter right. to f like a um i am but that you're calling f i am so this is f parameterized by a type so think of f when, when you think of f of a just put list in for f okay and it doesn't have to be list like you said it could you be don't maybe. call list with a could be maybe, could be dictionary, although that would have two type parameters, not one. You could have a list of T, and that's basically what that represents. Right. List of T is the same thing as like F, F of A here. So if we if we replace the list with F, if we can make that generic also, that gets us to the F of okay, A. Okay, so we're saying, so if we're doing list, let me just walk through it real quick. We're saying we have a list of A, and I can tell you how to take an A and turn it into a B. We can also return a list of B. I guess that Correct. makes sense. Yeah, you have you know you have your A's and you turn them into B's, and so and you know nothing about A's or B's or the function A to B. You just blindly take the A's out of the list, plop them in the function, get whatever comes out of there, and plop so them into a new is list. F a special convention or somehow has assumptions about it? No, it's just a name. It's just a very very common name. You will almost always see F as the name of a thing. F or M um, are the two names that you'll see very often. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you why here in a second. It's because F being a mappable thing is often called functor. Have we talked about functor on here? We have a little bit. We talked about like weird words and, and yeah. whatnot. So functor just means you have a map function. So functor would be the name of your interface that you're implementing. If, if we named interfaces that way in so, I So somewhere in your type declaration, you are going to say that this can map. It, this no, thing nothing, has the capability to be nothing mapped. by yes. just saying f it gives it that quality definitely not f by itself is just you're just saying i have a type of unknown uh, you know some unknown type that's parameterized by some other unknown type right. 
And by itself, you can't do anything with that. That's just like A. It's just, okay, well, I can return it to you. That's all I can do. You have to know more. You have to say, and F is mappable. Right. Or in Haskell parlance, F is a functor, which, which is sort of like colon, you know, I functor or I mappable, if you want to think of it in C sharp terms. Does that kind of make sense? It does. I think kind of is a, is a perfect, uh, perfect <laughs> yes. set of words for about Maybe. how it makes sense. <laughs> Okay, so you have a type parameterized by another type. We know nothing about either one of these types except that they have a operation they can do. In in one case, it's map. We call that functor. And what's cool about that is what do we know about the map operation? We we know we have this map function. It takes an A to B, it, it's a, it takes a function from A to B and an F of A and gives us back an F of B. What do we know about that function? We we can't see the code for it, we know nothing about it. What do we know? I guess it has to be map, right? Is there any other implementation that you can make? But but what do we know about the what it's going to do inside? You know it's going to transform A's to B's, I suppose? Using our function. Yeah. But it's going to run our function. Yeah, that's yeah. and not any other function. Right. There's yeah, I can't can't do anything. Yeah, there has no other way to do any operations on what's inside. So And just like the list to A to the list of A to list of A. Every B in the F of B came from an A in the F of A, whether that whether it's one of those or it's a list or you know whatever kind of structure it has, um, it came out of the F of A, was run through the function, and then inserted into the F yeah, of B. Yeah, fair we enough. Know Every that for B sure. is you know if you if you could reverse the function that turned A into B, it would mm -hmm. just bring it right back to A. Yes, right. It, assuming it's a reversible yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So we know actually a lot about that. So now we're doing this operation that's not like toy, like that's a real useful, legitimate thing. And we know that if we see this type signature, we know basically exactly what it's doing. And we know more importantly, it's not doing anything else. Because if your F has map on it, and that's the only thing you know about it, it can't do anything goofy. It can't go behind your back and do anything you might not want it to be doing. You know the only thing it could possibly do is taking A out, run it through the function, give you B. Hmm. That's, you know, that's useful to get a, that small amount of information, or not even small amount, that amount of information from just knowing the signature. Yep. And then from here, we kind of like extend out into other things. So you, you start to get Fs that are parameterized by more than one thing. So if, if, if we wanted to represent a dictionary sort of in a generic way, um, where, where it has two type parameters, it would be F of A, B. Right, you'd be parameters by two yeah, things. And maybe you have a function that transforms B's into C's and you return an F of A C. Right? Oh, right. So um so you gave the example before, a dictionary of A B to a dictionary of C D. We yeah, can write that. You now. could say I have a function that takes A's to C's and B's to D's. Exactly. And you would require both of those in order for that function to exist. So you need both transformation functions. Which syntactically I don't know how you'd pass that, but okay, whatever. Um you're just passing two so in if this was C sharp, you'd just have two func. Of type, you know, a comma mm -hmm. b and a func of, or I guess a comma c and b comma d. Gotcha. You just pass two functions as parameters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, in in relation to like the John DeGos blog post, which we should find and stuff in our show notes, uh, there's also another blog post out there that says why x, y, and z are good variable names, and it will give you a very nice visual representation of like taking 
very concrete code and massaging that into very generic code and how the author comes to the conclusion of X is really the only realistic name I could give this. And this goes back to the whole John DeGos, like if you can give it a more descriptive name, you've sort of made a mistake. John DeGos takes it a bit further and says, no, you're doing it wrong if you're not doing this, right? And I'm not saying he's wrong. I think I think there's a lot of merit to what he has Just to say. Just out of curiosity, when you're doing this, are you still doing intermediate helper functions? Like you still have these basic XYZ functions, but if you're doing this operation commonly on these certain types, you have a right helper stuff in between that you, where you do know something about it, or do you always just use so, the base function? So your A to B function knows exactly what those types are. Well, likely knows exactly what those types are, or else it couldn't go from an A to a B, mm -hmm. right? To take in an A and produce a B, you have to know a lot about A and B, because sure. you have to be able to fabricate a new yeah, B, yeah. right? You can't pass the A through. So that function there is very specific. And that's the very that's a common pattern. A lot, a lot of generic machinery that kind of moves things around and establishes. I don't care about the specifics. I care about this aspect of it. I care about the idea of transforming a f parameterized by a into an f parameterized by b. And the way I do it is this function. I don't really know anything about that. Someone else will provide that the specifics. I just tell you the part that I can do. And then you come along and you go, great strings to ints. I got one of those. It's called length. Sure. I'm going to pass length in. Um, I'm. I'm following you. I'm following you there. I'm talking more about this idea of generic. So in in your specific implementations, though, you can you you might even be calling generic functions, but you're still going to know a little bit more. So with your string to end function, like you can call the string not just x, y, or z, but s. Now you know it's a string, you know, or whatever. Yes, although I mean, you know, it's a string. Right. You, you don't know much more than that. So what meaningful name can you give any string? Right. I think. When you and I don't want to go deep into these again. Um, I just want to go scratch the surface of it. But if you include the idea of of lenses, which can go and just yank properties off of things, right? Not now you have things that you're very far away from writing concrete code ever. Those are at the very, very opposite end. Yes. Okay. So the last like point I kind of want to make here is that when you write a function that's polymorphic. And we're we're kind of I mean we could keep going down this this ladder here of, of making things more and more uh, polymorphic like parameterized by more types or something, but the idea here is if you look at just just the map example, right? That function when implemented knows nothing about the f. Well, I guess technically the the specific implementation of map for that f knows about the f. So there's going to be a map implementation for maybe for list. So it will know something about its type. It's a very but, minor requirement. But it knows right. nothing about the A's and the B's. So it can't cheat. It can't like make an assumption that it knows it's going to get strings. And so it's going to do this thing. And then you know that explodes and, and bites you down the, down the line. When we make our functions highly polymorphic, they have to do exactly what they say, which is often very constrained. They can't deviate from that. They can't cheat. And as a result, you have a lot more confidence that down the road, they will be usable. A lot of the value of uh, sort of big gigantic toolkit of highly composable reusable functions comes out of an effort to make as many things highly polymorphic as possible uh, to keep you it's, honest it's probably worth noting that um elm does not support this elm has parametric polymorphism it just doesn't have the higher kinded types part it can't do the f right, of a right. bit so they have a list.map 
and a maybe dot map and not sort of just a uh, a map that can be expressed as you know a generic like it works for any f that is right. mappable and that's not a reason to run away from elm it's certainly designed to be an easy place to enter for a functional language a typed functional yes. language yes or f sharp yeah. f sharp's in the same same sort of camp yeah okay so i have a quote to to kind of tie this all up so edsger dijkstra uh, once said, the purpose of abstraction is not to be vague, but to create a new semantic level in which one can be absolutely precise. I think often people hear abstraction and they think 14 layers of inheritance. Yeah. And they, and that's called abstraction. And really that is not, that's obfuscation. I, I, I run into this problem at my workplace where it's like, I start showing them, hey, look, you can express it like this. And it it's very generic looking but they're they're very turned off by it because yeah when you go down that route in imperative land you get burned in terms of uh trying to make things highly well when we say abstract do we mean like an inheritancy kind of abstraction yep okay because i'm i'm arguing that that's not actually abstraction in a meaningful way because it doesn't help you know more about the thing that you're talking about so abstraction in this sense and if you look at like dictionary definitions, they all very much tend towards this, is that everything that's irrelevant is stripped away. Only the pure essence of the thing is remained. And when you do mm. remains, and when you do inheritance in a traditional OO sense, you actually are adding more at each level, almost, I, almost exclusively. I will have to use that next time that discussion comes up. But they see it, it looks like the abstraction that they've seen before in in but in their oo terms where it's bad and mm-hmm. they think oh boy th- he's one of those um he's going to try and genericize everything and make it all useless and it's like that's not quite the case right like it actually it's going to become more useful but you have to frame it in this functional sense yes you're going to do less things with it but you're going to have higher confidence of what you're doing kind of a thing and and the the fewer things that you're doing all are the essence of what you're doing. <laughs> like with mappable functor, you can only do one thing. You can only map. And that is the essence of map. <laughs> That's it. That's what it means to be a functor, to be mappable, is that you can do this one map operation and transform one kind of F, you know, an F of A into an which F of B. Is, which is like the smallest responsibility you can possibly have, right? Yeah. So people talk about single responsibility yeah. uh, principle. This is right up that alley. This is, if functional programming used interfaces, we would have a bunch of interfaces that all have one function on them. That would be incredibly common. Most of these kinds of abstractions boil down to one operation, sometimes two. All right, do we have any closing thoughts? No thoughts. (laughs) I'm all out. You're like... I used them all in the episode. The type of my thought is A, and thus I know nothing about it and can only return it to you. I was reading up on some ML stuff, and I got to say, it was a big Haskell. And with that, we we invite all of you to send your hate mail to contact at lambdacast.com. You, I, I suppose you should feel free to send non-hate mail if if you should so desire. And uh, as we mentioned before, you can always hit us up at the FP Chat Slack community or on our page at lambdacast.com. We'll see you all next time. Toodles. See ya.